taste of Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. And welcome to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm talking to Janika Malvata about his new book, Blackbirds Don't Mate with Starlings. Welcome, Janika. Thank you for having me, Di. It's great to have you on the program. Now, this is your first full-length poetry collection, I believe. That's correct, yes. And you've published with uh, the University of Queensland Press. Well, I was fortunate enough last year to win the Thomas Shapcock Prize, which comes with a publishing contract through UQP. Um, and that's how the book came about. Well, that's wonderful. And it's a great book. And uh, it represents quite a lot of different areas of interest to you, I, I think. I think, well, the book came out of the lot of emotions that were stirred up by the murder of George Floyd, the Black Lives Movement, and then the backlash against the Black Lives Movement. So a few things that I'd carried around with me for some time just came came out, really. Now, you're a person of Sri Lankan origin, but you moved to Britain and then you came to Australia. So you've had to deal with the racism of white Australia and, and, and Britain and various other things like that in your history. Uh, yes, to, that's undeniable. The, um, I mean, the move to Sri Lanka, I wasn't really consulted about. From Sri Lanka to the UK, I wasn't really consulted about. I was under five. My parents moved uh, for job reasons and then we stayed there settled there permanently really in the UK and then I moved for work reasons to Australia when I was about 12 years ago. Great. Well, you've got a poem that describes a little bit of the complexity of your history and um, maybe we should begin with that, I am, am I. Okay. I am, am I. Sinhalese, Sri Lankan, Asian, Brisbaneite, Queenslander, Australian, Londoner, British, European. It's fun to be lots of things, isn't it? Well, it's, I don't know, I was just thinking about this one day and realised that actually all of those nine different identities I can legitimately lay claim to. Um, and I think that just, it's a reflection, but the, but the, which is a reflection of my history of moving countries but each of those identities and if you were to take them individually has a very different stereotype so it's interesting how they all mesh together yes well i think in the modern world you know people do travel and having multiple identities is uh quite normal so it, it, but it is an interesting thing the different layers of meaning that each of the different identities carries with it how do you find being in Brisbane and Queensland generally for poetry? Is there? Do you find there's much poetry activity? Brisbane is wonderfully welcoming the poetry scene here. I found when I first came to Australia, I had an interest in poetry, so I sought out the poetry scene here, and it was very inclusive, very supportive. 
Uh, Queensland Writer Centre is a fantastic resource. It runs regular poetry workshops. And uh, a lot of my friends in Brisbane, not just friends in poetry, but friends in general, have come from some of those writing workshops. Great. That's a win. Yeah. In Melbourne, we don't often hear about what's happening in Queensland. So it's good to know that there are great things happening in Queensland. So the next poem I'd like you to read is Swastika. Shall we just sort of say it's a kind of an interesting thing. In in Victoria, uh, we've just passed legislation that has outlawed the far-right white supremacist usage of the swastika, but, you know, made an exception for the traditional and historical and cultural use of the swastika. But, of course, uh, an awful lot of ordinary people don't know that it's a symbol with more than one meaning. So it's a complex situation, trying to ban it. Well, I mean, the far-right use of the swastika is a very recent aberration taken in the context of the history of the swastika, which has been a symbol used in South Asia for thousands of years. It's yeah. also interesting that in you know, in European societies during the First World War, it was a it was the swastika was used as a symbol of good luck on on cards that were sent actually during the First World War. So we've lost the knowledge uh, largely of what the swastika has always represented, and it's, I think it's important not to let fringe groups take over these symbols. Yes, that's right, and I think that. I mean, the whole of Nazism was an aberration, but their misuse of the swastika was just a part of a, a wider misuse of all kinds of mythologies and ideas and, you know, imaginary things like the imagination of a pure race. I mean, that's a lot of rubbish. And they they misused all kinds of ideas, you know, the Aryans. It's It's also... That word Aryan is also used in Indian history to describe a particular group of people, and they certainly weren't um, people that were German, you know. So, well, the word Arya means noble mm. in Sanskrit. Uh, I remember a friend of mine in school actually having an argument with a history teacher. He was uh, he had uh, Iranian heritage, and the one history is that the Aryans actually came from Persia and then migrated. Western North. So he he was explaining this to our history teacher who was dismissive and shut him down because he didn't know the history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, I don't think... uh, Certainly I wasn't taught Indian or Iranian history when I was at school in in Melbourne (laughs) a long time ago. It wasn't on the the program. So let's, let's hear Swastika. Some coward covered a swastika on my door. If I'd seen him, I'd have asked him. He's trying to make me feel at home. We have thousands of these back there, inset in lintels, in stone steps in our temples. But they're usually gold, brother. You need to raise your game. Buddhists, Hindus, Jains have revered this symbol for centuries. When you say swastika, you're speaking Sanskrit. An Asian tongue in your mouth. Asian archer inscribing on my door. This was our symbol before it was yours. You can't have it for your hate. It's not yours to take. Besides, those lines are all over the place. That cross ain't straight. That angle ain't right. Those arms you've carved at different heights. As a piece of craftsmanship, it's a disgrace. If that's the best you can do, no wonder all you have is hate. 
Yes, well said. Well said. No, it's um. So was that in in Britain when you were studying? Or? Yeah, that was when I was uh, actually at medical school. Right. Somebody somebody carved that on my door in the, in the halls of residence. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of my friends saw it and tried to erase it, but it was uh, very clearly visible because it was carved into a wooden door. Right. Right. Yes. Well, the intention would have been very upsetting. Yeah, it was. Uh, well. Presume that was the intention. The um, I had some good people around me, so it wasn't troubling particularly. Right. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean that's that obviously it was done. I think because I used to write my name in Sinclair, uh, in the they were little place where you could put write your name on a piece of paper over your door, and so mine was written in Sinclair. So presumably that's why it was targeted. Yes. It's funny how the suppression of languages is always a part of the racist project. I think, well, language is critical to identity, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, Gandhi has said that if you if you lose your language, you lose your culture. Mm. And uh, Murakami has said that when you learn another language, you start becoming another person. So it's very powerful. Yes. Uh, and so the and the. And the the eradication of language has been a, a tool of suppression used you know, everywhere. The British in Ireland and the British in Wales and here in here with indigenous languages and on the missions. Absolutely, you know, it's, a, it's a widespread practice. Yes, it's always there, isn't it? Yeah. So let's go to blackbirds and starlings. And um, tell me, this is Conversation Nurses Station, Barnet General Hospital, 1994. Where was the Barnet General Hospital? Barnet General Hospital was in Barnet, which is a suburb of North London. Right. And uh, I was a junior hospital doctor uh, in a relationship with a white English nurse. And another white English nurse took objection to our relationship because she objected to mixed-race relations. Uh, and expressed that to my then girlfriend at the nurses' station at work. Wow, that must have been very hard. Well, I think it. To be honest, I, it's interesting. I didn't really think about the consequences of those words on my girlfriend. I really only thought about the consequences of those. I took it as an attack on me, but always it was an attack on both of us. Yeah. Um, and it was only very recently when I read Stan Grant's book, about Talking to Country, uh, where he talks about the white women who loved us, where it I, I made me think again to re-examine that incident and, and that it meant something not just to me but also uh, to my girlfriend at the time. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure it did. It would have been a very difficult experience for her. Anyway, would you like to read this poem? What you doing within? Couldn't you get a proper bloke? A white bloke? I've seen you within up the eye street, holding hands and that. It's not right. We must teach your own kind. He'll let you down, you know, so always do. Probably married to a cousin or something. Yeah, where are you going? What you got the um for? I'm only telling you for your own good. Blackbirds don't mate with starlings. Yes. Happily, it's a much more diverse world now <laughs> than then. I mean, it, that wasn't, it wasn't an isolated incident. Right. So, so uh, the impact was more of a kind of, uh, not not another one, as opposed to not a great shock that people think like that. Yes. Yes, a lot of social pressure. 
no, not no, not necessarily social pressure. I think just just abuse actually, but it but it, but it was common. Mm. And so you've taken that as the title of the book. Well, I think it's a beautiful phrase with a with a horrific sentiment. Yes, it's it, it is a it is a very vivid image. And I think that if you you know if people are going to give you these tell these things at you, then there's no reason why you shouldn't use them. Yes, uh, for your own ends. So I've carried it around with me for twenty five years, and I think it's I think it's time I've got an outing. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean it's it perfectly embodies the situation and uh, and the poem. I mean, and it's it's nice the way you've done it in the voice of the of the nurse with the accent, you know. <laughs> I tried. I'm not. I'm. I'm not an actor, and I don't claim to pull it off, but I try. Some shakuhachi and koto music from Riley Lee and Satsuki Odamura and the CD Picture Dreams. I'm Di Cousins and today I'm talking to Janika Molvata about his new book, Blackbirds Don't Mate with Starlings. Saltwater Boys and Marys. A touch of the tip of the GA's quill signed on. You get them plenty kai kai. Signed for three years or signed for six moons, but taken for three years. In the hold, others who boarded to barter, tobacco, axe, pipe, saw their canoes shattered by pig iron dropped from the deck. Or were startled from sleep by fire kindled in their village, fled into ambush. Or were sold for 70 pounds of tobacco, two or three sovereigns, rummage of muskets which, when fired, would explode. Chained to a ring bolt or constrained in the hull, saltwater boys and Marys, from New Guinea, Ellis, across the Pacific, thieving for plantation labour. Five pounds a head, licence to import. Twenty pounds a head, recruiter's fee. Six pounds a year, wage, for those who received it. 
spoken by dogs dispatched into humpies, half a loaf and tea brewed from leftovers, two ounces of beef for the lucky, scallywag cuts from diseased cattle, usually killed for their skins, cut cane from can see to can't see. Sometimes Marys gave birth in the fields. When illness struck, doctors were called not to treat the sick, but to know what to write on death certificates. Three years later, those who survived taken home, or to another island, any island. All cut loose, no job, no food, no passage. All headed home down in the hold, but brought back to plantations, round trip no one bargained for. Immigration acts no longer required, rounded up. Last time in the hold, one-way trip, whether it was wanted or not. Men booted and hatted, women in long linen dresses. 60,000 came, 1,600 allowed to remain. Saltwater boys and Marys. Wonderful. So you've looked into the Queensland Kanika uh, slave labour situation effectively, have you? A little bit. I mean, I, I was completely unaware of it when I came to Queensland. became aware of it through talking to uh, various people and various friends and then researched it in the State Library of Queensland which is also a fantastic resource. Uh, and there were two books there. One was a book written by an activist who opposed the, the, uh, the Pacific Islands of Trade in, written in 1895. And one was a more contemporary book, which was also discussing uh, blackbirding. Yeah. And so when did it operate? Uh, it operated in the late 19th century by and large, and maybe the very beginning of the early uh, 20th century, so from the 1860s on to about, to about the early 1900s. But I think more predominantly in the 18, uh, in, sorry, in the 19th century. Right. Sort of dying out. Yeah. Um, by the beginning of the century. But it was, you know, there were, there were discussions in Parliament about it, and uh, yeah, the discussion really was you can either have a economy on Queensland, which was heavily dependent on sugarcane, um, or, or which is which was dependent on blackbirding and on uh, the labour of the Pacific Islanders. So, and the, the debate was you can either have an economy in Queensland, or you can uh, have these kind of bleeding heart notions about about abolishing slavery. It was it was tricky because the, under the British Empire, the British had abolished slavery not long. Uh, not long before that, so there were tensions even even within even within that, the administration of Australia at the time. Yes, um, I think it's part of our amnesia that we don't remember that you know we had effectively a slave trade with people from Pacific Islands, you know, who were rounded up and and forced onto boats against their will and taken to work in the plantations in Queensland. I, I think there's a very little awareness of it. I, it's another thing I wasn't taught in school. I mean, there is now, uh, or has recently been announced, uh, an acknowledgement of that community, because some of them um, did not go back, you know, absconded and went inland, and some, some of them did with Indigenous communities. Uh, and there is now the Australian South Sea Islanders, a sort of recognised uh, group, but but you're right. There is not sufficient awareness of um, of that history. But 
It's, I mean, I remember actually when I was not normally there, maybe maybe five years ago, at a, at a GP practice, and they were locking up the. Um, they had a big bar that they used to put a wooden bar that they used to put across the door to lock up at night time. And the receptionist, she was a lo- lovely lady and been very very kind to me. Said, "Oh, I'll just go and get the kanaka waka." Ooh, uh, what was which that? Is what they, which, which is how they refer to this piece of wood. Ooh. <laughs> wow. And she said, oh, maybe maybe we shouldn't really call that these days. Well, yes, perhaps. Yes. It's extraordinary um, that such a thing has survived in, you know, the common language in Queensland. Yeah, that's very telling, very telling. Now, we've got another poem on page 23. You say... And uh, and this is an interesting thing. I like the way that you analyse your the person you're speaking to, and their their very clear, delicate temperament. You know the white fragility. I mean, this poem arose from various comments that were made to me after the Black Lives Movement uh, gained some traction, and there was a. I mean, the Black Lives Movement, the thing that gave me most hope about that was that there were... um, The interesting thing for me about the Black Lives Matter movement was that the protest was global and that many of the protesters were white people who were protesting alongside black and brown people uh, against the injustices. But it didn't take long for there to be a very vocal backlash against the Black Lives Matter movement. And so... This poem arose really from all those comments that are made by people who were expressing a backlash against against the Black Lives Matter movement. Yes, and it's um, important to remember that you know George Floyd was murdered during the tenure of Donald Trump, where uh, you know you had a, I mean, and there probably still is an out of control police force in the USA randomly murdering black people but hopefully after the murder of Lord George Floyd it's it's perhaps not as bad as it was what do you think well I'm, I mean I'm not in the US so I don't know that I can speak to that with any great authority but there still seem to be a distressing number of killings of black people by the police force both in the US and in the UK there was a gentleman who was Killed just last week, Chris Cover, who was an who was an unarmed black man shot dead by police in London. Oh, so this is not a phenomenon that has gone away. Well, I know we still have a lot of black deaths in custody at a regular basis here in Australia and in Melbourne, and especially, um, and that the uh, recommendations of the Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody, which is thirty years old, have not yet been implemented. And um, you know, to address it, to address this issue in Australia, they just need to implement those recommendations. That would make a huge difference. But um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's a massive issue. Uh, Amy McGuire is a journalist who wrote a, a stunning article, actually a heartrending article called "432 Victims, No Perpetrators." And at the time that she wrote that article, there had been 432 deaths in custody of black people since that Royal Commission, uh, and no one had been convicted of any offence. Yes, well, uh, it, it's the immunity of the police, and it's a, it's an ongoing issue, you know. It's, um, it, it's, 
it's something we, we have to keep alert and hope argue for the implementation of the recommendations. Yes. Yeah, I think I mean it's it is shocking that there have been that all those implement all those none of those recommendations have been implemented. Um, and it's thirty years, so you can't say, well, it's just the Liberal government or something. <laughs> no, you know, precisely. there's been a few different governments in thirty years, yeah, so it's bipartisan. Okay, so would you like to read? You say. You say, of course, Black Lives Matter. All lives matter. You say there is no such thing as white privilege. You say white fragility is a racist concept. You say they are trying to rewrite history. You say, of course, we are friends. We have known each other for 20 years. I say, have we? Have we indeed? Yes, it's a killer last line. Thank you very much. Yeah. I like the poetics of it, you know, the uh, first person, the voice of the poet there. I mean, these are all conversations or, you know, lines that have come about in conversations. So the use of those two, the first person and the second person, is just a reflection of how those conversations took place, unfolded. Yes. But, I mean, it's a very, it's only... It's six lines and then two very short final lines, and you've said it, an awful lot in those eight lines. Thank you. So, just looking at um, the different styles in your book, um, I'm wondering what are you, what were your influences in writing poetry? How did you get started? My interest in poetry was first sparked by studying the war poets from the First World War, Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen who were, in essence, committing acts of rebellion in their poetry against the established wisdom. And then from there on, after university, I listened to a lot of spoken word in London, a lot of young artists who were also talking about race and identity, which resonated with me. So some of the poems have that performance sort of element to them. You can see that quite clearly. Now, we're not going to be able to get to the triptych, which is no a, a, the major, major poem in the book, which um, you've entitled Foundlings. But I'd just like to say that I really enjoyed it. And it reminded me a little bit of um, Tony Birch's work. Have you read Tony Birch? I can't say I have, no. Oh, oh well. He, a note. He's also published by uh, UQP. Yeah, I've seen his name. Yeah, and he's also, he's an Indigenous poet and he's also used, you know, found texts in government documents and repurposed them into poetry. So it's a really interesting method. It's also very powerful because you, if you just allow the words to speak for themselves, then you are getting a very direct reflection of the attitudes of the time or the attitudes of the author. So I've done it with Boris Johnson as well. And... You're just laying bare what people, you're just in essence publicizing what people are saying, but it's very powerful because you can really let their words speak for themselves, and sometimes that's quite uncomfortable. Yes, well, it, it's extremely uncomfortable to read Boris Johnson's found poems, <laughs> but it's really interesting work. But we've run out of time, and blackbirds don't mate with starlings. 
is the new book. I've been talking to Janika Malvata. And good luck with your poetry writing. Thank you very much. It's very kind. And uh, keep brightening up Brisbane because... (laughs) (laughs) Brisbane is bright enough. (laughs) We we, we do have moments up here. Yeah. Well, at least you've got warm weather, you know. We do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a win. So, But uh, I hope you come to Melbourne sometime and uh, experience some of the Melbourne poetry scene. I'd love to. So... I've been speaking to Janika Malwata about Blackbirds Don't Mate with Starlings. Thank you for being on the program. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976.